And welcome back. When it comes to covering the U.S. Supreme Court, NPR has Nina Totenberg, and for decades, the New York Times had Linda Greenhouse. Linda is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who covered the high court for three decades. She now teaches at Yale and writes a bi-weekly column for The Times. She is in town for a Planned Parenthood event and joins me in studio. It's a great pleasure and honor to meet you, Linda Greenhouse. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> there's so much going on. Uh, and we're hearing a lot of talk lately about the potential for a constitutional crisis with all this going on in Washington. Are you seeing it that way? Well, I said to my husband just the other day, I've never in my adult life felt so unable <clears throat> to keep up with what used to be the news cycle. I mean, now it's just drinking out of a fire hose. And I, I can... I don't feel I don't feel we're in a constitutional crisis yet. I think we're in a crisis of political leadership that could certainly evolve into a constitutional crisis. Sure. What what would what would create such a crisis? Do you think? Well, I think the president. Um, well, we know he fired Comey. We know he wants to fire Mueller. Apparently, he's extremely angry at the. Uh, at Christopher Ray, his own hand-picked FBI director who pushed back against releasing the memo. <clears throat> uh, somebody made the comment, maybe it was on Morning Joe uh, yesterday, that it's like a slow-rolling Saturday night massacre. And at a certain point, you reach a criticality when, uh, you know, people who are there as kind of a firewall um, abandon ship and... I guess that's what I mean by, in part, what I mean by a crisis of leadership. And, uh, you know, then what happens? Yeah, well, there's a, lo a lot of speculation that the FBI Director Ray may, as a result of this memo having been made public, uh, might very well step down. But obviously we have to, to see. D do you wish you were in Washington, Washington now? Oh, I'm so glad that I'm not. Oh, <laughs> I'm relieved every morning to wake up in New Haven, Connecticut. Yes. Yeah. And, and where you're, you're teaching and... Um, and also doing some work still for the New York Times. Yeah, I have a freelance contract, so I, I get to express my opinion every two weeks. Getting back to uh, the court and issues related to Washington, um, do you see anything going on right now that's likely to wind up before the Supreme Court? You mean any of these yeah. political yeah, controversies? Yeah. Well, I don't think the court wants to get involved. In, in, of course, I mean, the court has taken jurisdiction of the current travel ban. Yeah. Uh, 3.0. Uh, <clears throat> the president has asked the court to get involved in the DACA situation, which I'm quite, quite sure the court won't. Uh, the administration has asked the court to um, rebuke the American Civil Liberties lawyers who uh, helped a detained pregnant teenager exercise her constitutional right to abortion that the Trump administration official tried to stop her from doing. I don't think the court's going to want to get involved in that. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a, a question. Do we have the court as a firewall, or are we going to have the court as an enabler? Yeah. And uh, I think the jury's out on that. However, the, uh, given the, uh, the complexion of the court right now, it, it does seem to be leaning in favor of a Trump administration. It's a conservative court. Well, I yeah, I'm I'm a little loath to make that kind of judgment. I mean, <clears throat> in the travel ban case that was before the court last summer, of course, uh, the court 
required, I mean, got rid of, basically, um, the kind of the core of that of that executive order, and that's what sent the president mm-hmm. back to the drawing boards. And they, you know, there's now there's now number three. So, um, no, I think I think Chief Justice Roberts is rather exquisitely attentive to the political moment, and the last thing he wants is for the court to seem like a lapdog for Donald Trump. He does not want that. Uh, there may be others who are perfectly happy with that, but, uh, you know, it takes five votes to get anything done at the Supreme Court, and, and I don't offhand count to five for just the court rolling over. You say the Chief Justice is attentive. Uh, is it possible for a court to not uh, take full awareness or be fully aware of public opinion when it deliberates? Is it possible to distance itself, the justices themselves, from this? Well, that's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Professor Lee Epstein, who I'm guessing has been on this program, she mm-hmm. teaches at Wash U, mm-hmm. uh, was the co-author of an interesting article a few years ago. Uh, the, head, the, the title of it was something like, um, Does Public Opinion Influence the Supreme Court? And the subtitle was, uh, we think so, but we're not sure how. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ambiguity with that. Now, of course, the justices live in the world. Uh, they're considerably less insulated than others of our federal officials who exercise great power. I mean, they live in their own homes. They drive themselves to work. Uh, you know, let's assume they watch TV. They read the paper. So they know what's going on in the world. They're not, they're not isolated. Uh, but how that, how that translates into their legal view um, is an interesting question. I mean, if you look back to the, to the Guantanamo situation in those years shortly after 9-11 when uh, the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Bay was you know, filling up and people assumed that the Bush administration had correctly guessed that uh, these detainees were have been put outside the reach of federal courts, outside the jurisdiction of federal courts. And it fell to the Supreme Court to say yay or nay to that, to that prediction. And the night that one of these big cases was argued to the court, and it was uh, the spring of 2004, on the nightly news that night was a revelation about the depredations that were going on at the U.S. prison at Abu Ghraib, um, if you recall that. Oh, yes. And... Um, uh, you know, the court ruled against the Bush administration in the two big cases that spring coming out from Guantanamo. And it always struck me that um, that was an instance where the court kind of viewed itself as the last best hope for standing up for the rule of law in that context. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm right about that. Maybe I'm not. But... Uh, I, I, I do think that the justices do pay attention to what's going on in the world. How much do they talk to each other, do you think? You, you, do you know? I mean, you, you're friends with some of them. And they, when you retired, a, a number of them came to your retirement parties, I understand. But do they chat about such things as they're deliberating, or, or do they keep far apart from that? Well, I never like to pretend to know more than I know, but my impression is, and the, certainly the literature uh, would tell us that the basic answer is no, uh, that the court believes institutionally 
that uh, the best practice is to reduce whatever you're thinking to writing Mm -hmm. and circulate it around because, uh, you know, a lot of what the court does, the devil really is in the details. And it's easy to speak in very general terms and easy to be misunderstood, over-promise, over-encourage, whatever. But when you have to put it in writing, it tends to be more precise and more, you know, more direct. So I don't think there's a lot of chat. In fact, I think I've I've learned that uh, they 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 have lunch every day when they're on the bench. They they go on the bench at ten o'clock in the morning and they break for lunch. That the the rule is the norm is uh, we don't talk business. We celebrate each other's birthdays. We talk about you know what's playing at the Kennedy Center, whatever. But we're not going to sit around and, and chat about cases. Well, one of the reasons I asked that question, I think a lot of people were surprised to hear that two people who got along famously well on the court were Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they come from opposite sides of the political spectrum, obviously. Well, you know, I find that very interesting. Uh, everybody brings that up. I think there's a great hunger among the public to believe that we can set aside our differences and we can all be friends. And the Ginsburg-Scalia friendship has come to stand for that. Yes, they were friends. It grew out of their mutual service as, as people a good deal younger on the Federal Appeals Court in D.C., where they were both um, judges. Uh, you know, did they hang out together? I don't think so. You know, they both liked the opera. They would go to the opera. They had a uh, a New Year's Eve tradition where uh, Justice Scalia was a big game hunter. He would shoot some big animal. Uh, Marty Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg's late husband, was a great cook. He would cook this animal, <laughs> and they would have the two couples would have uh, New Year's Eve uh, dinner together. And you know that's very nice. But I, I don't think they were basically hanging out, you know, schmoozing over the back fence about about cases. No. A lot of people are wondering how long she's going to hang out on the Supreme Court. I mean, she's elderly, and uh, obviously if she were replaced by the current president, it would really change uh, the dynamics. Well, you know, she's not much more elderly than a bunch of other people on the court. So to be perfectly honest and to push back a little, I have long found the interest in how old she was and when she would retire to be a little bit sexist. Oh. she, But she was also ill, and that was... Uh, no, she wasn't that of- ill. Well, it was pancreatic cancer, wasn't it? Well, she didn't actually have pancreatic cancer, but Uh she had colon cancer. She was treated for that and cured of it. Well, what do you hear about uh, Justice Gorsuch? We hear and read that uh, he doesn't get along very well with the other justices. Well, um, I don't really have any sources about that, but I do have uh, close observation. And my observation is that um, he annoys them. He talks too much. He's, uh, he's condescending uh, to others. He gives them little civic lessons in the course of his opinions. And uh, uh, he doesn't seem to be following the norm that a junior justice uh, kind of take it easy, sit back and get the lay of the land. So uh, so we'll see. So, so maybe nobody wants to uh, sit next to him <laughs> at lunch <laughs> when they're <laughs> deliberating, huh? I, I believe they sit um, in strict order of seniority. So Chief Justice Roberts would be at the head of the table and Justice Gorsuch would be at the foot. 
the uh, you, you you covered the court for just about thirty years, and obviously personalities have changed uh, uh, amongst justices during that time. But ha- has the court itself changed in any way, in any in any means of the way it does business or the way it approaches business? Well, it's, it's gotten more transparent, I would say. Um, the court has a pretty good website and. Anybody that wants to know what went on at the court that day, they put up the transcripts of all the arguments. They put up all the briefs. Uh, just this fall, they have, for the first time, required uh, lawyers who are filing their appeals uh, to file electronically, and they're all posted on the website. That's a great boon uh, just to be able to really get into you know, who is speaking to the court and what are they saying. Uh, so I give the court... I mean, maybe it was slow in coming, you might say, but I give the court uh, credit for that. Uh, Other than that, uh, no, their basic procedures have endured for quite a long time, and I don't see any any big change in those. We uh, we make a point on this program often that uh, this is something that the American voters should be looking at every time there's a there's a national election. That the importance of the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I'm sure that that's something you feel strongly about. Well, of course, the the polling from the last election showed that um, the Trump voters cared a good deal more about the court, or at least cared their their vote was more informed by concern about the future of the court than the Clinton voters uh, by a statistically significant difference. And you can make an argument that it was the prominence of the Supreme Court as an issue, uh, thanks in part to um, Senator McConnell's refusal to give a hearing, let alone a vote, uh, to President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland for the Scalia vacancy that kept the court front and center as a political issue and was really, really smart politics. So, yeah, I think it's incumbent on, on all sides of the spectrum to pay close attention, not only to the Supreme Court, I might say, but to... Um, to the lower federal courts as well, which is where most of the lawmaking in this country takes place. The court, Supreme Court only hears about 60, 65 cases a year, and there's thousands of cases working their way through the federal system, and the, who the judges are really matters a lot. It's, uh, it's interesting, and to some people, perhaps even a little bit frightening to think that the current president could have influence over the judi- judicial system for 30 or 40 years, given the potential for making replacements uh, at either level. Oh, yeah. I think there's something like 160 vacancies on the lower courts right now. Um, Part of that's just normal turnover. Uh, Another part of that is the Republicans' refusal to confirm many, many of President Obama's appointments in the last uh, year or so of his his presidency. and, and also um, a number of cons- elderly conservative judges on the lower courts have chosen this moment to step down from active service. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. Well, what were you thinking during the whole Merritt Garland episode, that, that year of lim- in limbo? What was I thinking? I was yeah. thinking that this is a really uh, norm-breaking behavior. Uh, the Republicans tried to say, oh, everybody does this, uh, you know, in an election year. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Nobody had ever done anything like this before. It was really singular. Uh, I didn't realize at the time, I think, how, how smart it was and mm-hmm. what the bigger game 
was afoot. Um, so, you know, I thought it was deeply hypocritical because a number of leading Republicans had uh, said very nice things about Chief Judge Garland uh, in the past. Uh, it only turns out they didn't like him when he was named to the Supreme Court. So I found it a very disturbing uh, public spectacle. And is it uh, does it become a precedent setting? That's another well, that's issue. That's a question. That's yeah. a, of course, you know, the Senate, at least for now, has abolished the filibuster uh, for the Supreme Court. So, um, you know, one uh, unless something really changes in our politics and some one party or the other gets uh, 60 votes in the Senate, which seems quite unlikely, um, you know, the, the party on the outs has no ability really to influence what's happening unless there are some defectors from the majority party. And uh, and so— yeah, it's, it's, it's we can see prospects for quite quite a mess. I'm talking with Linda Greenhouse, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for, from for many years with the New York Times. We have to take a break. We'll do that now and come back and continue our conversation. If you'd like to be a part of it, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at three eight two eight two five five. That's three eight two talk. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you would prefer to send us a tweet, we'll take it at STL on air. Back with Linda Greenhouse in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back as we continue our conversation with journalist Linda Greenhouse. What are you doing with your time these days aside from teaching and uh, aside from doing occasion, occasional blog writing? Well, I follow the, uh, I follow the movie business because we have a daughter who's a filmmaker in Los Angeles. Mm. And just had a film at Sundance. And uh, I have a new book out, actually. Um, it's kind of a memoir. Or it's an autobiographical look at the practice of journalism today, a book called Just a Journalist. Just a journalist. You're not speaking of yourself. You are more than just a journalist. That's the title of the book. That's the title of the book. Well, I wanted to get to that and, and get your thoughts on uh, on where we are, particularly in the newspaper business today. Uh, it's well well known that there has been a period of some decline, although the Washington Post and the New York Times have done tremendous work in the last year or two. Yeah, the Trump presidency has been a great boon to both of, both of those papers. I think, um, I think I've heard that the Times has added hundreds of thousands of new digital subscribers. So, um, yeah, keep it going. You uh, are hearing a lot, as we all are, about fake news, and that is not designed to uh, burnish the reputation of the media. Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't have any great insights into that. I mean, there's always been propaganda. There's always been, uh, you know, rampant PR trying to spin stories, I don't think, I mean, fake news is a new label for an old practice, and obviously it's been one that's been um, enabled by social media. Uh, but it's not, it, 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 it's, not some, it's not a brand new creation. 
and, and yet, has it been damaging, do you think, overall to uh, the media in general? It's, oh. it's, it's referred to so often and so, you know, yeah, I mean, pointedly. I, you know, frankly, that's above my pay grade. I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, you know, people that stick to the mainstream media, um, I think, get the news. Uh, people that want to indulge themselves in uh, fantasies and conspiracy theories um, can easily do that if that's their, if that's their choice. Well, what are you saying in your book about, about all of this and about where we are? Well, so what I really talk about in the book is the evolution of mainstream media political coverage in the age of Trump. And I just found it very fascinating that the journalistic norms of two sides to every story, he said, she said, even if one of them was telling an obvious untruth or even if a story has only one side or 20 sides, you know, uh, these were practices that really um, determined the way news was covered. And so what I trace in the book was, it is how in the 2016 election, uh, the New York Times principally, that's my main uh, sort of database, uh, came to have the self-confidence and feel the need by September of 2016 to call a major party candidate in very big type in a front page headline, a liar. And uh, that would not have been predicted even, I think, a few months ago. And it's just a fascinating turn of events. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the evolution and what I think are the, the kind of um, bad effects of those norms that have basically kept journalists from telling their readers and their listeners what they actually know. They have to frame everything as a story with two sides. Um, and so the question I end the book with, and I don't have an answer, is has something fundamental changed in journalism's DNA uh, because of this experience? Or in the post-Trump era, will things, uh, you know, will there be a regression to the norm and everybody will just revert back to the old habits? Once that word liar was used, uh, it, became, um, it became omnipresent. I mean, every, everybody has no problem using it anymore. Well, the lies became, the lies yeah. became pretty omnipresent. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think people are actually uh, careful about mm-hmm. using it because, of course, a lie as opposed to a misstatement uh, implies that it's deliberate, that the speaker knows that the speaker is not telling the truth but says it anyway. So uh, – you know, I think it's it's very useful to be cautious about about that label. But when it's fully justified, sure, use it. Do you think the press and the media in general dropped the ball during the presidential campaign in not picking up what was going on sooner than uh, it did? Well, tell me what you mean. You mean the Russia stuff? No, no, I'm, ta- I'm talking about the campaign itself before the Russian stuff, in which uh, everybody was kind of uh, using Donald Trump as entertainment during the campaign and not taking him seriously and saying he wasn't going to win, but they didn't have the pulse of the, of the public, if you will. The public was, was lapping this stuff up. Well, of course, of course, he didn't win the popular vote, but— um... He's president— <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly there were lapses. I think there was much too much attention to Hillary Clinton's emails. I think that just got ridiculous. 
and there was a kind of imposed equivalency that, you know, no matter what Trump did or said, it was always balanced by, oh, and then Hillary's emails. You know, that I think that was not not political journalism's high watermark, and I think a lot of people now see it that way. Yeah. How about, the, you, you've had some critics too over the years, uh, because of you have uh, been outspoken on certain issues, abortion being one of them, and, and people saying that maybe that uh, jeopardized somehow your objectivity as a, as a news person. How do you respond to, to the people who have said that? Ah, well, um, nobody can show an instance of it, actually. Yeah. Um, I talk a lot about that in, in the book. It was actually one of the um, uh, impetus I had for, for writing the book. And what I question is whether um, is what the line should be between uh, the role of a journalist and the role of a journalist as just an ordinary American mm-hmm. citizen. And the view that I take is that journalists should, of course, be judged by their work. And if they are on the, um, the mainstream news part of the street, mm-hmm. Not not in my current role. I'm an opinion columnist, so sure. obviously an opinion mm-hmm. column without an opinion is a failure, so I, I'm paid to give my opinion. Mm-hmm. But back in the day when I was paid to suppress my opinion, um, I did that perfectly well, and nobody ever had an, no, never had an instance when I didn't. But what I do insist is that uh, journalists are citizens who live in the world, uh, who have the right to vote, who have the right to show up at a demonstration, not under a banner that says, you know, New York Times reporter for choice, but just as a person. Um, and that's that's my belief, and I'm happy to have uh, discussions or even arguments about it. Should, should uh, political reporters put uh, political signs on their lawns? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But should they vote? Oh. I mean, you get I mean, some very prominent journalists think that uh, Journalists shouldn't vote. That that's a conflict of interest, and I just I'm, I'm just not there. I just don't get that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm asked to ask one other question here. We only have a minute left. How difficult is it for a journalist to cover the Supreme Court? It's it's a pretty closed society. Well, no. I mean, everything they do, they do in public. I mean, the opinions come out. It's a lot more open than trying to cover Congress, where entire agendas can disappear without a fingerprint. So, uh, no. I mean, it was a, a good, hard, challenging job. And is. Is it easy for anybody to uh, to move in that environment and cover it? Is it easy? Yeah, no, yeah. but nothing worthwhile is easy, right? That's that's what they say. What's uh, what's going on tonight with Planned Parenthood? Uh, I'm I'm speaking to a Planned Parenthood group here in St. Louis, and I'm giving a talk that I call the present and future of abortion rights. That issue, an issue very close to your heart, obviously. Well, I want to. Thank you so much, Linda Greenhouse, for being with us. Welcome to St. Louis. I hope you brought your warm coat with you because you're needing it during the course of the day. <laughs> and thanks so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Alex Hoyer and Lara Hamden with production assistance from Aaron Dorr and Spencer Reed. The executive producer is Mary Edwards. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.